1: Outside of playing the game of baseball, the Negro League players and their teams had to manage the daunting and challenging task of traveling from city to city across the country. From an economic standpoint, this often meant playing many times a week in both large and small venues. Baseball historian Professor Leslie Heffy describes the concept of barnstoning.
2: So travel is a fascinating thing to think about. And so travel um, for Negro League teams, when you're talking about the Crawfords, the Grays, things like that, they they had a sort of a two-fold travel schedule. Um, so you might have, let we'll use, I'll just say, the Chicago American Giants, right? So they're going to play on Monday and Tuesday in Chicago. And their end goal is that on Friday and Saturday, they're going to be playing in New York City. So what do you do between traveling from Chicago to New York City, you play whatever games you can set up in whatever communities are available to you. So it might be Cleveland. And so you play in the Cleveland Buckeyes, or it might be you're taking a little more of a circuitous route. And so you get down to go to Dayton or you go to Zanesville. Um, and so for a lot of Negro League teams, and this is something sometimes people, they might play literally maybe 70 or so games 75 games, something like that, that are actual league games. And those aren't always played in the big cities because sometimes the two teams would come together, but more typically. And then the rest of the, you know, 100 or so, 120 games that they played could be anywhere, right? And so lots of small communities, but that was the idea. You needed to fill your schedule and you needed to be, and part of the reason you needed to do that was because you needed to make enough money to keep the journey going, they played in lots of major league stadiums, but they also played in the high school stadium where they played in the local park, um, depending on what was available to them.
1: Pitcher Dennis Biddle describes the importance of the barnstorming games economically to the players. We would
3: play barnstorming games. on. A, say we're going to Kansas City to play the Monarchs, Chicago. They would play two or three games in between that game. We call them barnstorming games. We call them money games, because if you won, you got 60% of the game. If you lost, you got 40% of the game. And we couldn't afford to lose. We needed the money to travel on to the next state. And this is how, uh, how it was playing in the Negro League.
2: It depended on who was playing. It depended on what day of the week. Um, And so trying to figure out how to optimize the money that you're making, right, as the as the owner was trying to figure out what days do you want to make sure that your team is in a big city and you're playing against a bigger opponent? Because you might play a Friday, Saturday, Sunday set of games and make enough money that that's going to take you through the next couple of weeks. And so then the additional games are simply to supplement that. Right. Um, And so can and it also depended on the team. Because, for example, the Kansas City Monarchs certainly historically had a much stronger financial backing than the Cuban Giants did. Hence the reason the Cuban Giants don't really have a, a home, right? They they move almost year to year to find a different city to call home because they don't have that. So it also depended on the financial backing that they had.
1: Infield, the Gerald Kasten remembers the many places the Negro League took him.
0: Because I was saying in the Negro League. Uh, we faced some pretty good ball players, uh in in play against guys up in Pinocchio, Alberta, Canada and Trinidad, Colorado, Whitefish, Montana, Preston, Iowa, Missoula, Montana, you know, man, it was
4: it was it was exciting. I really enjoyed it. I went to places that I don't think I would ever win if I had been in a major
0: little small town like that. They treated you well and you gotta get the city part of uh the United States, i out there when win the set. So I, I enjoy myself.
2: So, for many of them, this is going to be the first time they've ever left the confines of where they have grown up, right? What they are used to, what they're comfortable with. And so, you know, you're going to get a wide range of experiences that they're going to have depending on how far they're going to travel so and where they're coming from. So, if you think it's about somebody like Hank Aaron who's coming out of the South and is going to find his way. Um, traveling with these teams and in the Negro League part of his, he is 17 years old, right? Willie Mays is 17 years old when he, um, and they're going to suddenly leave the South to go up to Chicago and to go to Kansas city and something and experience a world that they had, they would not have gotten to experience otherwise. And that meant everything from these issues about travel, how is this going to happen? Who are you going to meet to encountering often maybe more white fans than they have ever seen before, which is also gonna mean they may hear things and, and, and see uh, things that they had not expected to see.
3: I'm 17 years old. A lot of things I did not understand. I didn't understand why people will pay money and come in game, call us all kind of names. I didn't understand why after a, a game, we go to the hotel, said, and say vacancy and they tell us no. We couldn't eat in the restaurant. We had to eat and sleep on the bus. The bus was like home. This is the life of I the mean, Negro baseball league, so.
2: If you were from, uh, you know, like Buck Leonard when he came out of Rocky Mount in North Carolina, black community, it was insulated. And, and so then you find yourself in a city like Chicago and suddenly you're gonna see these colored and white sign that you wouldn't have seen at home right and so in some ways they're going to more readily experience the Jim Crow laws and the results of segregation than they would have otherwise in addition to just the other side of it the more positive side which is getting to go to a big city and experience the jazz music and it, when they're not playing to experience the fans um maybe the explosion of opportunities for new foods all of those kind of things i mean the connection between a lot of these teams and um the bars and and places that where jazz mu- musicians were playing right and getting to go here these are incredible ex- incredibly exciting experiences for a 17 18 year old um, that they would never have gotten otherwise so there's the both the positive and the negative sides of these travel experiences for them
1: Pitcher Eugene Scruggs used the travel to appreciate home and as a learning experience.
0: Uh, Just just riding all over the country, and, you know, uh, at that time, you know, school, uh, after school, you know, um, um, that, you know, we would make make up a game, game, you know, with the people in the community where I live, and so, you know, it was... um, it, it, the experience of being uh, on the bus and everything, you know, uh, it made make me think back at home, you know, in some place that way you travel, like in Mississippi, you know, had cotton fields, just like the had cotton fields in Alabama and everything, and and uh, I can recall one time we was at the um, we was uh, studying in our geography uh, about the uh, the the seven uh seven eight great lakes and everything and and you know, that made me think about them when I was around the lakes and stuff and it made me think about um uh the uh, uh I can't think of the name it's in Virginia where uh you know, where the slaves, you know, were brought in. Right. And um and I on the ground turn and all this stuff, you know, I I got you into seeing it and It was a, you know, it was a great blessing, you know, that um, sometimes I thought I learned more about traveling around than I did at school.
1: Professor Leslie Heffy discusses the evolution of team travel from cars and the importance of the team bus.
2: By the 40s and 50s, you're going to see a little bit more of the bus than than you did previously, but that was still not always the primary way that teams traveled. Um... Buses were expensive, buses were hard to come by um, for some of the teams. So what they tended to do more commonly was actually simply to pile in their cars. And so they might have five or six cars to which they're all. And so that meant, of course, that the players are doing the driving. So imagine you know, playing a doubleheader and then having to jump in the car and drive all night to get to the next place where you're playing. Um, when they had buses, typically you know, you might have the the trainer or somebody like that who's driving the bus. You wouldn't necessarily have a dedicated bus driver. Um, the bus gave the advantage often of giving you a place to sleep, a little more room to, because often that's what they were doing. Buses also gave you the opportunity to um, air your uniforms out. They'd literally hang them out the windows <laughs> as they were going, and a lot more room to do that. Um, buses gave a little more camaraderie, a little more chance to. This is where you get you know, Charlie Pride talking about singing on the bus and things like that, um, when he was playing for Memphis. Uh they could travel, you know, from New York all the way out to Kansas City to and, and play everywhere in between.
1: I feel the uh, Sam Allen remembers his time riding the bus.
2: When when you played in that Negro league, you traveled,
4: I mean, you you, you were just like a family. Yeah, you're on that bus, you slept on the bus and uh we 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 fight, you know. Together, we did everything.
1: The bus was the team's safe haven, and oftentimes a last resort if the team could not find lodging. Jim Crow laws and racial segregation created many challenges as to where they could stay, and where to eat, and where to get gas for the teams who traveled across the country.
2: You know, prior to 1954, Brown versus Board of Ed, that whole notion of separate but equal ending right, even though. I say ending, a piece of paper doesn't end at all, right? For a lot of the teams when they travel, two biggest, three biggest difficulties that didn't vary too much depending on where you were going was where do you stay, where do you eat, and where do you get gas? And that last one may be a little easier to navigate than the other two.
5: Ready? Okay, give me a beach. Beach!
6: you
2: So what you have on the travel side, for example, with the question of where do you stay, oftentimes that was the job of the manager, the owner. Sometimes they had a traveling secretary whose responsibility was to try to figure out what towns are there places where we can stay. And what they were typically looking for are are there Black-owned hotels, which you would find more in the South than you tended to find um, than, than in some of the Northern cities, or are there homes where... And this is where the church sometimes came into play, where they could provide the address and the names of folks who were willing to put up ballplayers for a night, you know, because white hotels, you're just not going to be able to stay in. Um, And the alternative to finding those was you have to sleep in the cars when you're traveling or in the bus. And that's where a bus certainly was an advantage over the other. Um, And so that played a lot into you sometimes wonder when you try to track a team's travel and you're like, why did they go that far out of their way? Well, that's probably why they were looking for somewhere to sleep somewhere where they would be welcomed Um, as far. And then the other one, of course, would be, where do you get food? And so again, finding black owned restaurants, which are a little easier to find both North and South or having to go to white owned restaurants. And you send either the lightest skinned player that you have, to try to bring out the meals if you had somebody or you had to go to the back and get served out of the back of the restaurant. Um, And that was often the case where people had to do that. If you couldn't find families that were going to serve you, the church, putting up a meal, that kind of thing. Um, And so that those restrictions really had an impact on where teams went. You know, if you went down to um, Louisiana, and you were in New Orleans, you knew that there were a number of black hotels. If you were in uh, Pittsburgh, there were black hotels. So you wanted to try to minimize the number of times you had to sleep in your, in your, in your vehicles uh, because that invariably led to some of the accidents sometimes, things like that, um, you know, and then getting gas. I mean, something as simple as that is also sometimes difficult because not every place is going to serve um, or are you gonna be able to get gas? And is that a stop where you can use the restrooms? Typically not, right? Because, again, think about the colored signs and the white signs over um, the drinking fountains, things like that. So they're going to encounter all of those kinds of things, um, which were which made travel an adventure.
1: Here's outfielder San Allen from his interview with Ron Barr.
2: I
7: know you remember stopping at restaurants and being denied access through the front door, and then you'd be directed to enter through the back door of the kitchen to get something to eat and it was not uncommon to be refused restroom usage at service stations along the road. Did you all ever get used to that, or had it been going on for such a long time that you did get used to it?
4: Well, no, you didn't get used to it, but sometimes you didn't have any choice. If you got hungry, and especially if you played the night before and you struck out a couple of times, you needed to get a good meal for you. Some of the restaurants they had in the kitchen, they had a, like a piece of plywood and some fish box in the kitchen. But what we would do in the kitchen, the made the cook uh, looked like us. So we'd talk to her, and uh, we'd get three plates in one. I know if the man knew that she was doing that, it would kill all of us. <laughs> but we'd sit back there in the kitchen, and we eat up half his food.
1: <laughs> Even when you could get a hotel, the places where the players were allowed to stay still created challenges for the players. Here again is outfielder San Allen. Well,
4: I tell you, we uh, some of the funny moments, I, I can say we when you went to a hotel, uh, it was a good thing that just about every ballpark we went to had a shower. So you uh, got a chance to shower. But when you went in the shower... You had a, a, a rubber. You had a rubber where you put your money in and carried it in the shower with you. Because if you left your money on the locker, somebody was gonna clip you. <laughs> and uh, that was one of these things. And then when you when we went to a hotel, the, the, most of the hotels we went to, they had maybe ten rooms on the floor and two bathrooms, and you'd have to stand in line sometimes two or three hours to get in the bathroom.
1: Oftentimes, young players had no idea of the struggles that players would face. Willie Mays recounts how his father had the foresight to make sure Willie was well looked after and had appropriate accommodations due to his age during his time in New York.
8: Well, my first year was kind of scary because I, uh, I came to New York when I was about 19, just turned 20. And coming from Birmingham, Alabama was very scary because New York I had read about it and I had played there for a couple of years with the Birmingham Black Barons. So coming back to New York, being a player and being a, uh, a star in the outfield in in New York, uh it was kind of scary. Well, my dad was a very uh smart guy. He was a guy that uh will stay ahead of me this way. Uh when I went to Birmingham Black Barons at the age of around fifteen uh, he had already called the guys and told them to take care of me, he, uh, not let me go out by myself anyway, uh, not to be around fast people. So he already w- had told them what to do. So when I even when I got to New York, he had called a, a guy named Joe Walker, which was a barber there, to make sure that I got a good room, make sure that I, you know, I uh, ate right, uh, I didn't, you know, go out too much. So he was the type of guy that was very low-key.
1: Author Jim Reisler recounts some of the writers who tried to tell the stories of the player struggles and how even Jackie Robinson continued to struggle with travel after he broke the color barrier.
7: They basically told it like it was Um, when they rode the buses. And they didn't travel a lot with the teams, but when they did, uh, they would write sort of first-person stories about traveling conditions. And they would describe... Uh, The crummy hotels people had to stay in. In a lot of cases, they were homes. They would describe the opportunities that weren't available to them. And most critically, it's interesting, when uh, Jackie Robinson went to spring training with the Dodgers in uh, 46-47 down in Florida, um, Jim Crow, Florida, everything Jackie Robinson did was news. I mean, he'd brush his teeth and it was news. And these black writers had a couple of them, Sam Lacey of the Baltimore Afro-American and Wendell Smith of the Pittsburgh Courier, uh, really had special access to, to Robinson. They were as much sort of his mentors and his traveling companions as they were writers. But they would describe uh, what he went through. And it's fascinating to go back and look at these articles and see sort of day by day what um what a guy like Robinson was going through. It wasn't just Jackie Robinson went 2 for 4 yesterday with a double in the fifth inning. It was what he went through when he sat down for lunch and what he went through when he was pulled over by the traffic cop. I mean, that kind of they again, they were advocates, but they really really were very tough in describing what he
1: went through. We end our episode with the story from pitcher Gilbert Black, who discusses his memory of the bus and the two rules of playing for the Indianapolis Clowns.
9: Well, we had a bus. We had a, we had a bus, and uh, the, the bus was somewhat segregated in a sense, not by, uh, not by color, but the higher echelon of players sat on the right side and the uh, sort of uh, lesser players, like the beer players, so that sat on the, on the uh, left side, usually with two occupants in a seat. And I was lucky I was on the right side with uh, one occupant. What was Me that? and King Tut, Ch- Debop, no. and, and so on and so forth.
7: What was the pay like for, for the players that played with the Indianapolis Clowns? I
9: made $250 a month. And our last game we played in uh, washington d c in nineteen fifty six and the players were supposed to share the gate, and we would we would share the gate and get a, a percentage of the gate. I left with forty some dollars, I think it was forty two dollars. by the time I got home to Stanford, Connecticut, I was dead broke
6: <laughs> paying
9: paying paying to get home. so we didn't make that much money, but we love baseball, and we, uh, you know, kept playing. There was two rules on the clowns, and that was hustle on the field and don't miss the bus.
1: <laughs> Behind the Barrier, Voices from the Negro Leagues, is narrated by Bill Overton, produced by Taylor Haber. Executive producers are Jason Weichelt, Darren Peck, and Ron Barr. Please check out our next episode as well as the episodes in this series. This series is distributed by Sports Byline USA and the Eight Side Network.